starting off with Parshis Mishpatim Be'ela HaMishpatim Asher Tafsim Lifnei a very short first Pasuk these are the judgments that thou shalt place in front of them so I'm really getting into this American thing speaking English ye old English I'm a Red first today right? right anyway what happens if there's uh, what happens if there's two Adim without Hasra two Adim see something happen but there's no Hasra they What's forgot to give Hasra they did not warn they didn't say you better not kill him or else you're going to die what happens if that happens do we kill the person no. two guys definitely saw it they definitely saw it happen but you can't do it right what happens if there's one guy or Bazden knows it happened they absolutely know they absolutely know they, they, have, video they have an idea they have a, somehow yeah they have a video camera of what's happening does that work no, no. so does the murderer get away with it yeah no very good. Our dinner are totally different from any other nation's dinner. One of the shavuot's made in all is to make din. In other words, to make the din for there to be based bati dinin, English bati dinin, to be out there for them to judge certain cases. By us, it's not necessarily a mitzvah to make a bezdin. It's a mitzvah to judge according to the judgments of the Torah. That was a, that's a mitzvah, but it's not a mitzvah to make a bezdin to have a bezdin. You know why? Because the exact opposite. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is in charge. We know He's in charge and we know He's taking care of everything. There are some things where HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us Rishus to judge the case. And to say, okay, now it's time to kill him. Now it's time to do this. Now it's time to do that. You know why? You know why HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us Rishus in certain situations? Why doesn't He just take care of it all on His own? What does He need the judges for? He'll take care of it. He'll punish the people. He'll give them rewards. He'll do everything. Why do we need judges? Because sometimes you need a kapara. Sometimes an atonement has to, has to be given. And if the guy had two Adam and Hasra, do you know how ridiculous of a situation that is, Avi, don't kill him, or else you're going to die. And I have Mr. Aid over here, I'm Mr. Aid number two. We're going to testify on you, and you will be killed in basement. And you say, Apo Pique, nonetheless, I'm still going to kill him, and you go ahead and kill him. What in the world? That's such a strange, offbeat case. Why does the guy run away while the 15 minutes of speeches go on? Why in the world don't the two Adam try to save the guy? What's going on here? Yeah. Do you have to have that exchange where the person acknowledges it verbally? The person must say, Apo Pique. And if he doesn't say, Apple Pecan, it doesn't work whatsoever. What if he says all the more so? Tokenay Dibori has to kill. And not Apple Pecan. What if he says all the more so and not Apple Pecan? Don't kill him. All the more so? No, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah, in, in any language that he accepted it okay. and he got it in. So the shot is that a Kurdish was a formula for that Kapara. The Kapara can only happen in certain situations. You will be atoned for if that's a situation. And then, if you die, or if you get Malchus, or if you get this, or if you get that, then then you'll have, you'll have everything taken care of. But otherwise, Everything is in God's hands. Number one, the number one thing is in God's hands. Just we are given permission to give a kapara in certain situations. With Goyim, it's exact opposite. They have no permission to really punish, but they have no God that's sitting there and taking care of them, or at least they don't think that anybody's taking care of them. So they have to do din, and sometimes when you do based in, and you have to rely on the most ridiculous situations, you can't go with two Adam and Asra, right? So you need to go with just one aid. Well, the one aid could be a liar. When it's two Adam and there's Asra, it's very likely that they're telling the truth. When it's one aid and it's just whatever, and like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that Zach killed Harry over there. You know, then it seems very light. It's like, okay, maybe, maybe not. But the guy, the guy will have to take that court case, and they'll have to say, alright, we're going to have to judge based on that, and they'll be machayv innocent people. They'll be machayv innocent people and send people to their death, or send people to jail that they didn't necessarily have to send there. Why? Because they don't think there's anyone going behind, going behind the scenes. That's the difference between us and the guy. So it says about Shem Tov, and now we get to the 
good stuff. These are the Shabbatim that you could put in front of them. Diana, we're not superheroes. As much as we'd like to think that they're superheroes that can look into your heart, and there was the Gura who was able to see inside the guy and be like, oh, you're telling the truth, or you're lying. And Shlomo Malachi was able to tell the truth, you know, who was able to tell who was telling the truth and whatever. No, they're not superheroes. HaKadosh Baruch will take care of all those people when the murderers get off the hook, so to speak. That guy's going to lose everything that he needs. You think that you know different? You think that that's unfair for that guy? That's gaiva on your part. That could be fear on your part because you don't believe that God is taking care of everything behind. But HaKadosh Baruch has a plan. And lots of times, there's little Gilgulim involved. There's Gilgulim involved. Why this guy had to lose money in this case. Why that guy had to die in that case. Why this guy had to have this or that, whatever it is. Why this guy had to get away with it. There's Gilgulim involved. Let me give an example. Baal Shem Tov says a story. It's one of the best stories I've ever heard. It's like a crazy story. Baal Shem Tov was already revealed himself. He was known as a big, big chassid. People know, knew him and they went to camp. They went to see him. They went to get a bracha. They went to get this, that, whatever it is. To daven with him. They did all these things. One guy came in one day to see the Baal Shem Tov. And he said, you know, he sat down and he spoke to the Baal Shem Tov for a little bit. And the Baal Shem Tov said, so what did you come in for? Did you come in for a bracha? Did you come in, you know, for anything? So the guy said, I just came to see your face. He said, what do you mean? You don't want a bracha for anything? He said, listen, I'm extremely wealthy. Baruch Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's with a lot of wealth. I'm a big Talmud Chacham. I know, I, I learned to memorize Torah, Shulchan Aruch. I know, you know, Halacha is all over the place. You know, I know all these things. I've been blessed with many, many children, many sons, many daughters. The daughters are married to outstanding Talmud Chachamim who are rubs of their very own towns. My sons are all in my business and they're also Talmud Chachamim. They're all rich and they're all fine, whatever. And I haven't had any problems. All of them have, I have grandchildren from every single one. I honestly don't have one problem in the world. So I, I really don't need a bracha from you. Thank you very much, though. Sval so says, you don't need anything? You need nothing? He said, no. You just came to see my face? He said, yeah. He said, all right. You came to see my face. Look at my face as I tell you this story. Look at my face. So he tells him, there was this, this happened quite a bit ago, says the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov says there was a guy who was, uh, there was a guy who uh, apparently they had he had grown up with his brother and they grew up in a town in Russia and they grew up together and they were very very close always close with one another very very close always like talking to one another whatever it is all of a sudden they grew up and they went to different towns one guy went to this town one guy went to that town they were both successful they used to write letters to each other but eventually you know writing letters takes a while so just petered off and eventually they just stopped writing letters a couple years later this guy saw a man coming to his town and he recognized him but he couldn't really tell who it was and he called him over and he sat him down or whatever and he said I'm your brother and he said, oh my gosh. Pulls him in, and he pulls him into his house, and he makes like a huge feast and everything. Calls it together, like all the big important people of the town and everything. And he turns to his brother in the middle of the meal, and he says to him, tell me, what do you need? What did you come for? He said, listen, I've fallen at hard times. I don't know what happened to me, but I lost all my money. I'm not so sure what to do. I really need some help. So the brother said, listen, you're my brother. I love you like I love myself. I'm going to take all my money. I'm going to write it down in a little star. I'm going to see how much money I have. I'm going to divide it in half. Half of it I'll keep. Half of it I give to you, and you'll be able to keep the other half. So Bo said, "Oh my gosh, I've never seen such kindness. Thank you very much." So the guy says, "No, please, please, it's my pleasure. I'm your brother, whatever." So the guy says, "Okay, fine." So the brother goes away with half the money, and then he starts going back to his own town and starts going up in business. Well, this guy who just gave away half his money started going down, started losing all his money, and so finally he was poor and he had no money left. So he decided, you know what? I'll go to my brother. I gave my brother half my money beforehand, and I remember that's what happened. 
happened. I started going down. I heard that he's been successful. So I'll go to him and I'll ask him for my money. I'll, I'll ask him for some money. So he goes up and he goes to the other town. He goes to find his brother. He goes to the gates and he knocks on the door. And uh, this servant comes to the door and says, what do you want? He said, uh, I've come to see my brother. I, I need a little bit of help. I'm not doing so well. I need to see my brother. So the servant goes back, tells his master. The servant comes back and he says, my master says he doesn't know who you are. He says, what do you mean? I'm his brother. I gave him half my money. How could he not know who I am? The servant says, I'm sorry, but that's what my master says. So the guy was like really upset. He said, I only have one coin left in my pocket. He decided, what the heck? He went to the shook. He bought something. He ended up selling it for a higher price. Got the money. Used it on something else. And then went back to his old town and made all his money all the way back. Made everything that he had made before even more than he was richer before. Richer before he had given half his money away. He became extremely rich. While the brother, who refused to give the money away, he started going down again. Started losing all his money. And once again, this rich man who now knew what it was like to be poor, the real generous brother, that guy started to invite poor people from all over the town over to his house to come eat by him and do this, whatever it is. One day, he's looking at his meal and he sees all the people around and he recognized someone's face. But it looks so haggard. It's like he couldn't really get him. So he went over to him and he said, I know you from somewhere. How do I know you? And he said, I'm so embarrassed. I'm your brother. I'm your brother. I'm the person who wouldn't give you the money in your time of need. I feel terrible about it. Now I need money. I went down to my business again for sure because what I did to you, I feel terrible about it. I, please, I, I don't know what to do anymore. His so brother said, look, you stole my brother. I, I'm sorry that this had to happen to you. And obviously, you know, you did a bad thing, but it looks like you learned your lesson. He said, okay, fine, I'll do it once again. Took all his money, split it down in half, kept half for himself, but he said, this time, I'm going to write a star. We're going to sign it, we're going to get eight of it and everything, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make sure that this goes through. This guy said, not a problem, don't worry, you can trust me, don't worry about it. So they signed the star, they put it out, he gave half his money over to the brother, the brother went back to his old town, became rich again, while this guy, straight down again, became really, really poor, as you can probably imagine. He goes to the town, finally he decides, okay, I got a star. So he goes back to the town, goes to the town where his old brother was, and he says, okay, I want to, and the Baal Shem just says to him, I thought I told you to look at my face. Look at my face as I tell you this story. The guy goes back, all the way back to the original, to the to the old town, and he knocks on the door again, and the servant comes to the door. I don't know if it's the same guy. The servant comes to the door, he says, who is it? He tells him who it is. He goes back, and he says, my brother says he doesn't know who you, your brother says he doesn't know who you are. The, my master says he doesn't know who you are. Because what, what do you mean he doesn't know who I am? Tell him I have a star, and I'm going to take him to Bazden if he doesn't give me my money. So the servant goes back, comes back, and he says, master says he doesn't care. Do whatever you want. Take him to court if you have to. But he's not giving you a single penny of his money. So the guy's like sitting there and he says, what, what does that mean he's not giving me any of the money? And he gets all, all upset. And he decides, okay, whatever, he'll do what he can. Goes back to his old town, spends a little bit of money, doesn't become rich, becomes medium, whatever. And then whatever, he lives in his town and forgets about the whole incident. They both die. They both go up to Shemai. They both in Shemai. He says, Baal Shem Tov, I told you to look at my face as I tell you this story. Look at my face. See, they both go up to Shemai. As they're in Shemai, they decide, the guy who kept giving his money, the generous guy, that guy's, that guy's going straight to Ghanaian. Well, the guy who wouldn't give his money, Anyway, that guy's going straight to Gehenna. He's going straight to Gehenna. So said, uh, said the rich, the guy who was going straight to Gehenna, and he spoke up. He said, "Am I allowed to speak in court?" They said, "Yes." They say he got up and he said, "Listen, I don't want my brother to go to Gehenna just because of me. I don't want him to go down to Gehenna because of me. I feel terrible that he's going to Gehenna because he wouldn't give me the money. It's not his fault. It was whatever. It was my. It was money that he didn't realize what the money was doing to him. It's not his fault. Please." Either we both go to Ghana or we both go to Gehenna. So Basin is in an uproar. What are we supposed to do? If we send them both to Ghana, but that guy didn't deserve Ghana. We send them both to Gehenna, but that guy didn't deserve Ghana. So what are you supposed to do? So what did they decide to do? They decided to send them back as Gogul. 
the Baal Shem Tov says, listen to my face as I tell you the story. And the job is like this. The guy who was generous, kept giving his money away, that guy will be born a very poor man. The guy who was very miserly will be born a very rich man. The job in their life, if the rich man ends up giving tzedakah to the poor man, then they'll both go to Ganeda. But otherwise, all knocked out. Nothing will happen. So they go back down into earth. One is born into a rich family. One is born into a poor family. The rich man grows up to be an extremely miserly guy. Very, very big tzaddik, but a very miserly guy. Or the poor man goes around towns collecting money for all the anim of his town, for all the poor people. He goes around from one town to the other to go get money. So one time he goes to a certain town, and he asks, you know, he goes around, he collects, and he says, look, I, you know, I haven't made a lot of money in this town. Is there somebody that I haven't gotten, somebody I haven't spoken to, who I can maybe ask for some more extra money? So they said, well, there is one really rich guy. He lives in a massive mansion at the edge of town, but don't go to him because you're never going to make any money off him. He doesn't give money to anyone. He doesn't give money to anyone. This guy's a big miser. So he said, look, you know, if he's out there, then I'm going to go to him. And the poor man goes to the rich man's house, climbs up the stairs one by one, all the way up to the top, gets up to the top, and knocks on the door. The servant answers his door, calls the master, and the master comes up. The master says to him, yes, what do you need? And he said, please, you know, I'm collecting for poor people in my town. The guy says, no, 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 I don't give, I don't give to poor people enough in my town that I don't know. You know, I only give to certain poor people. I don't give to just anybody. So the guy said, please, you know, just a little bit of tzedakah for these people. These people are poor. And I myself, I also need something. So he said, no, 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 absolutely not. I'm not doing it. I'm sorry. This, I, I can't do it. He says, listen, can I have a little bit of food? I've been working all day long. I've been running around all day. I haven't eaten anything all day. Do you mind if I have a little bit of food? So the rich man says, no, 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 I don't have any food in my house. He looks inside the house and he sees on the table, it's like a massive meal set with like huge amounts of bread and vegetables and all the meat and everything all sitting on the table and everything all there. So he says, listen, I want the food. So Bob Shemsa says, you said you were going to look at my face. Look at my face as I tell you this story. And he looks at the food and he says, you got a whole table full of food over there. Come on, let me have just one piece of bread. Let me have one crust of bread. So the guy says, absolutely not. I can't let you in. So the guy, the poor man says, I'm taking it myself. And he starts pushing his way inside, but he's weak. And the rich man has been eating all day. So he pushes him, and the guy falls backward and keeps falling backward until he starts falling down the stairs. And he goes all the way down the stairs, fell down on the ground, and cracks his neck. And he died. And the rich man lost his tikkun in this world. There's no way for him to get that tikkun in the world. The guy is sitting there in front of the Baal Shem Tov, starts bawling like crazy. Starts crying like crazy. And Baal Shem Tov says, no, I thought you just came to see my face. You didn't come to cry. What are you crying for? And he said, Rebbe, that was my tikkun. That was what I was supposed to do. That happened to me a month ago. I had no idea what to do with the poor person. Nobody knew what his name was. Nobody knew where he was from. We have no idea who this guy was. So we just buried him in a poor section of the city and I had no idea what to do about this. How did I know that, that my tikkun in life was to give this guy a little bit of tzedakah? How was I supposed to know that? Sebastian says, you lost out on the tikkun. There's nothing you can do. So the guy starts bawling. He says, there's nothing I can do. Absolutely nothing I can do. Please help me, Rebbe. What can I do? So the Baal Shem tells him, the only thing you can do is find out who this guy was. Find out who his parents were. Who his, I'm sorry, his wife is. Find out who his kids are. Bring them to your town and feed them as if it's your wife and if it, as if it's your kids. Find the poor person and bury him in the greatest part of the cemetery where the tzaddikim are buried. Make sure he's buried in that part of the cemetery. Then after that, you're going to have to go into Gullus for a little bit. You're going to have to go into exile and live three years away from everybody else. And if you do that, then maybe you'll get the tikkun that, you're, that you need. That's the shot behind that. You have absolutely no idea what's going on in this world. And to prove that again, I'm going to say another story. You know the Baal Shem Tov, we're going to get to the other ones. Why does the Baal Shem Tov keep saying to look at his face? Because he kept telling him, like, pay attention because this is you. Trying to make uh, sure that he knew that it was you. But 
but uh, the other one is this is an awesome one. The Baal Shem Tov had certain Hasidim that came to him for for the Chagim, for each Chag, you know, for Pesach Shavuos, Sukkot, whatever it was. Certain people came to him at certain times. One guy, one time, was running over to the Baal Shem Tov. He was afraid he wasn't going to make it before the Chag started, so he was right by a town, and there was a guy who ran out of the shoal of that town and said, "No, it's center, it's center. We need a tenth man. You're the tenth man. There's no other tenth man. There's no one that's been around here. We need a tenth man for the minion. You're going to be our tenth man. I have to say, Kaddish Day is my yard site. It's time for you to be our tenth man. Come, come inside. The guy says, no, 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 no. I can't stop right now. I've got to run. I've got to make it onto the next town. I've got to be able to be there. Otherwise, I'm afraid that I'm not going to make it to the Baal Shem Tov for, for, for Yom Tov. So the guy said, no, no, come on. I need a minion. I need a minion. The guy said, no, 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 no I can't do it. So he keeps going. Ends up making it to the Baal Shem Tov for Yom Tov. It's one of the Baal Shem Tov. And usually the Baal Shem Tov, Shem Tov spoke to him, said something to him, whatever it was, didn't say anything. As he left, usually he leaves with a bracha for the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov totally ignored him. Next Chag, the exact same thing. The Baal Shem Tov totally ignored him. Did not say one thing to him the whole time. Finally, at the end of the third Chag, he went to the Baal Shem Tov and said, No, Rebbe, I don't understand what happened. Why are you ignoring me every time I come up to you? Did I do something wrong? So Baal Shem Tov says, Do you remember a couple months ago, you were by that town and they were looking for a tenth man? And you said, No, 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 no. I'm sure you'll find somebody else. And you left and you went to the next town and you didn't dab him with them and you didn't make that guy's minion? He said, Yeah. He said, Your purpose in life was to make that minion. That was your tackles in life. So you're allowed to remain in this world because the Kaddish Baruch has enough Parnassah within the world that you're allowed to be here. But your tackles in life has been lost. So for you and me, for me to speak to you, it's not worth it. It's like talking to an animal. I might as well not be talking to you at all. Obviously the guy did his tikkun and he figured out what was wrong and he did the tikkun that was supposed to be needed. But either way, the idea is that you have absolutely no idea. You have absolutely no idea what's supposed to, what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. The Bootshasharov. This is the crazy story. Shalom Shor Dron said the Bootshasharov knew that in a previous Gilgal his main sin was drinking Yain Nessa, wine that had been libated to Abu Zara. He knew that that was in his previous Gilgal. So in this lifetime, in the Bootshasharov's lifetime, he made sure that he would never ever drink wine that was touched or even looked at by a Goy. He would make sure there was no Goy around whenever you would drink wine. There was no Goy ever around. On his deathbed, on his deathbed, he's sitting on his deathbed and he's in a lot of pain. He's given a certain medicine. As he's drinking a certain medicine, he starts drinking it and immediately says, Oi! Yayinesech! And then he died. And they found out, they looked it up, they saw that in that medicine, there was Yayinesech. Yayinesech. So even when you try that hard, you still don't know what a Kaddish Baruch Hu has in store for you. There's always reasons for what's going on here. So what you do is the following. And this is the Pshat. These are the Mishpatim that you put in front of them. You are supposed to do the following. Is everything going to work out perfectly? No! Never expect it to work out perfectly. Kashbah has reasons for everything to happen. However, you do everything that's in your control, that's under your control that you can possibly do, that's good. And then everything will work out in the very, very end. And to start all, seem to end with an unbelievable story, things are not always as they seem. And a Kashbah was always behind everything. The story of the Orachayim in the two mirrors. This Orachayim is an absolute crazy Orachayim that's said over. It was told over all the way to Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld. Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld said he heard it from his Rebbe the Ksav Sofer. They heard it from everybody else. Absolute crazy story. The Orachayim lived in the times of a certain sultan. Lived in the times of a certain sultan. This sultan who lived in some Arabic land. I'm assuming it's Morocco because the Orachayim was originally from Morocco. He was a sultan of the land and he was an extreme, he was an extremely good stargazer. He looked at the stars and he wanted to see who was born under his mazel. Meaning who is as successful as he? Who is as hushub as he was? So he looked up in the stars and he saw that this guy by the name of Chaim Ibn Atr was born under his mazel. 
So he wanted to go see what is this guy like. He assumed that he's going to be this huge, rich guy, you know, this great guy. Well, huge is not necessarily into it, but either way, he's going to be this great guy, this unbelievable guy. He's going to be, you know, like this tremendously rich person. So he goes and he checks out where the Ruchaim Ibn Atar lives, and he realized that he lived in a little tiny shack. So he dressed up as like a pauper and everything, and went over to the Orachaim's house, and he knocked on the door. His wife said, hello, whatever, my husband's not home, we'll be home in a couple minutes, come and sit in. Come sit down, he'll be here in a couple minutes. Sits down, and he sees, he's like sitting on a dingy, dingy chair, that's like sitting on like three legs. There's like a poor wooden table in front of him with another chair, and a couple books, and like a straw mat on the side of the house. But that's it, there's nothing else there. And he's sitting there, and he's like, that's it? There's nothing else in this house? What's going on here? Dorachaim all of a sudden comes in, and immediately he looks up and sees the king's the sultan sitting there, and he says, your majesty. And he bows down, and he goes in front of the king like that. The sultan says, how do you know that I'm a king? How do you know that I'm that I'm the sultan? So the Orachim says, you have an aura about you. The malach that's with you is a malach of kingdom. It's a malach of kings. So that malach who's with you, I can very easily see, and I can see that. So the sultan said, I don't get it. You were born under my mazel. You can see malachim. But are you as great as the mazel says? If I'm the king, and I'm the king of this known world, don't you think you should be something extremely great as well? Like, who are you? So Orachim says, my king, I don't underestimate your ability to read the stars, but this time you were wrong. The king said, I knew it. I knew I was wrong. He said, I'm much, much greater than you, said the Orachim. He said, what do you mean I'm much, you're much, much greater? He said, go to the Shuk and go buy me two mirrors. Go buy me two mirrors. The Sultan said, okay. Went out to the Shuk, bought two mirrors, and came back. The Orachim said, take the mirror in front of you and place it in front of you. What do you see? So he looks inside and he, sees, he says, I see the world. The world, the entire world, as if you could see it from outside the world. He said, turn it around, turn it back. Now what do you see? He said, I see the land. My land, all of Morocco. I see all of Morocco right there in front of me. He said, turn it around, now what do you see? He said, I see my city, the capital city. He said, the capital city. He said, turn it around, now what do you see? My palace. Turn it around, I see my bedroom, my private bedroom. He says, what's going on in there? He says, the queen is sitting down on top of the bed. And all of a sudden, the vizier, the chief vizier, the second in command, comes inside and is trying to seduce my queen. He's trying to seduce my queen. He's trying to make sure that when I come back, that I'm going to be killed and that he'll be the next sultan of all of Morocco. So the Orchim said, what is the punishment of such a person? The punishment of such a person? To be killed. He's got to be killed. He's rebelling against me. He's got to be killed. So Orchim says, take out your gun out of your pocket. Take the gun out from your holder, whatever it is, and shoot into the mirror. Shoot into the mirror. Directly into the mirror. But aim precisely at the vizier. Do not go anywhere near the queen. Make sure it's only hitting the vizier. So he puts his gun up to the mirror, shoots it, and the mirror shatters. So Orchim says, take the other mirror. Picks up the other mirror, turns around, and sees immediately, seeing in the palace, the queen is sitting there, the, sult- the grand vizier is sitting in a pool of blood on the ground. The queen is going crazy. Not only does she screams out loud, two guards come in, also with grand plans, and they realize, oh, this is a crazy case. We don't know what happened, and we don't want to blame you, the queen. So instead, we'll blame it on the Jews. So they take the body, and they bury it. They bury it in a crazy, like all the way down in a cellar somewhere, and they claim that the Grand Vizier is disappeared from off, you know, from the palace, and they they hire two Adam, two false witnesses, to say that they saw the Jews killing the Grand Vizier, and they saw the Jews killing him. 
So the Orachim turns to the king, and the king is shocked, absolutely shocked, puts the mirror down. Orachim says, this is happening in your palace right now. When you go back, you'll see that all this is true. The king says, what am I supposed to do about this? So Orachim says, what you're supposed to do is make a huge party. And in this party, invite all the chief officers and invite me. And say, I'm going to be the Jew that's going to be deciding, that will decide the fate for all the Jews of the land. So invite everyone there, and then we'll decide what to do. So they all, they went up, uh, they did that exactly. And the king came home, and he saw everything had happened. The grand vizier was gone. The grand vizier has been gone, and whatever. The queen refused to say what had happened. She refused to say everything. And the Jews were being blamed for the murder. So the king pretends that he knows, and he says, all right, we're making a grand party. We're going to kill all the Jews in all Morocco. Calls over the queen into his be- into the bedroom, and he says, listen, you have to tell me the truth. And she denies it. Finally, she says, yeah, 100%, I don't know what happened. The king realizes that everything that happened was entirely true. The Orachim is sitting down at the meal, and they get up and they say the famous line that everybody always uses against the Jews, listen, O king, look at what the Jews will do. If a fly falls inside their glass of wine, they'll take out the fly and they'll drink the wine. But if you, the king, would touch their wine, he'll spill it out and never drink it ever again. You see what the Jews think of, uh, the Jews think of Goyim? This is absolutely ridiculous. They say that. So uh, the Orachim gets up and says, O king, of course I would drink your wine. Let's go to the royal cellars right now, and I'll from the best wine that you have here. Thinking, that's where the mace is. They all go all the way down to the cellars and the two guards are extremely nervous now because they realize that something could happen. They start walking this way and that and the sultan says, okay, what wine do you want to drink from? So Orkhan says, well, not over here, not over here, there. And he sits right there. And as they walk there, Orkhan turns to the sultan and says, do you smell something? The sultan says, I do smell something. He says, doesn't it smell like a dead body? So the two guards start yelling out, no, no, it's probably a dead rat, for sure a dead rat, nothing else other than a dead rat. They say, let's dig, there. <laughs> they take a shovel and start digging, and immediately they find the Grand Vizier's body. The two guards are so shocked, they admit to the whole thing or whatever. And this Orachayim later became the Grand Vizier of Morocco, the Grand Vizier of Morocco for the couple years that he was there until he moved to Aratisrol. That's the story behind the Orachayim. If you understand that a Kaddish Baruch has everything inside his hand, everything can be taken care of. Of course, if you have the Orachayim, you can do it through Kabbalah. <laughs> but if the Orachayim can do such a thing, you don't think a Kaddish Baruch can take care of these things from behind? I said he behind that. All right, let's skip a little bit. Doctors. Doctors, doctors, doctors. Rapoi rapei, that we need rishus and prosecute tests to be healed by a doctor. What in the world does that mean? We need to be healed from a doctor? The famous girl, we won't go into the girl right now. You know you have to save people. What in the world is the deal with all this? Okay. There's a condition of Mem Tesmanal. It says, Tov Shabarof and Legehenim. The best of doctors go to hell. That is the line that is set out by the, uh, by, it's a Mishnah in Kedushan, at the very end of Kedushan. What does that mean? The best of doctors go to again. How could that be? What does that mean? So, Rashi says over there, you know why? Because doctors are evil, and they don't serve poor people. The poor people, they let rot, and they have no fear of death, and they have a lot of gaiva. So therefore, they are going straight to Gehenna. We have no doctors here, so that we're okay. I mean, your parents might be, but either way, regardless, they say that that's why doctors are going to Gehenna. But Rabbi Kivager takes a totally different approach. The idea behind it is, says Rabbi Kivager, Tov Shabaropen, the best attribute that doctors have, sends them to Gehenna. What's the best attribute for a doctor to have? Absorries. Cruelty. The best mida for them to have, the best attribute, is cruelty. Why? Because can you imagine if a doctor sits there and he's like, I've got to do this incision, but I don't want to make a cut in this person's body. Or if a person says, I have to amputate the arm, but 
I don't want you to go without an arm, so I'm just going to let the virus spread. There's a point where you have to say, you have to be cruel, and you have to say, I'm going to have to cut off your arm. And if I don't cut off your arm, then you're just going to die. He has to say that. He has to be cruel sometimes. That doesn't mean that he has to come outside the waiting room and say, like, yeah, your husband's dead. Uh, that's it. <laughs> that he doesn't have to do. But the, but the Mida, yeah, you should try to say it in a good way. But the Mida, that, it, that makes him the best doctor out there, cruelty is also the one thing that will send him to Gehenim every time. So the line that's given over here is Tov Shabrofen, the best part of the doctors, that sends them to Gehenna every single time. That cruelty sends them to Gehenna. That's the shot. you got to work on your meters. There's a Misa that's brought down in that Tiferes Yisrael about Moshe Rabbeinu. That Moshe Rabbeinu was said, there was a famous, there was a, a guy who lives all the way in another land who also was a famous stargazer. And that stargazer used to hire people to do base, to do palm readings or forehead readings or whatever it was. See, he wanted to know, he heard about Moshe Rabbeinu and he wanted to hear, he wanted to see what's up with this guy Moshe Rabbeinu that everybody says is such a great guy. Who is this guy? What does he do? And how in the world did he become this great? So he sent all his forehead readers, all these painters, or this one painter, I'm sorry, this one painter to go paint a picture of Moshe Rabbeinu. Get a picture of Moshe Rabbeinu and to bring it back to him. So the painter went all the way to Eretz Yisrael to where the Jews were, not Eretz Yisrael, but around the Midbar, painted a picture of Moshe Rabbeinu and brought it back to the person, to the, to the, to the king to show him what the picture was. He showed it to the people who can read foreheads. The guys who can read foreheads looked at it and said, the guy's a murderer, the guy's a thief, he's an adulterer. He's all the worst meters he can think of. He has kas, he has gaiva, he has this. Everything he can think of, all within this guy. They are all within this guy. So, the guy said, actually, you can't say that. This is Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is well known for the fact that he's supposed to be a very humble guy. For the fact that he's a tremendously great guy. How can you say this about him? So, the guy sent him all the way back and he, the, the painter came back and he swore to them I swear to you I painted him exactly as he looks so the king said alright I'm going to go see it for myself he goes to the midboard and he goes to his Machnaklai so he sees the Jews in the midboard and he goes in and he looks at Moshe Rabbeinu and he sees that Moshe Rabbeinu looks exactly as the guy had pictured him he says to Moshe Rabbeinu I'm sorry I sent my picture guy over here but it must be that my forehead readers are dead wrong because they say that you have all these bad meters but I know how great you are you even have a shiny face. How in the way? There's no way that he could have seen that within you. So Moshe Rabbeinu said, you don't get it. I was born with the worst meters in the world. But I worked on myself. And I became the person that I am today. I worked on my casa. I worked on my gaiva. I worked on this. I worked on that. And I never gave myself into all those all those terrible, terrible meters. He worked on himself to the point where he worked. He became the Moshe Rabbeinu that we know that he was the greatest out of, the greatest this, the greatest that, the greatest of everything. Yeah, tell me what you're going to ask. Born with a shining face. That's a good point. A very, very good point. I, I mean, there's a lot of kashas that you have to ask on this Misa. Ramos Shapiro says there's no MS behind the Misa. Ramos Shapiro says that the whole Misa is a falsified document. It's quoted from Ashita Mikubetzis in the Dharam in the third parak. So that makes it somewhat authentic. Because Ashita Mikubetzis. But they say that Ramos Shapiro claims that it was forged. The reason why is because of a lot of questions. Number one, you can't see Moshe Rabbeinu's face. Number two, they couldn't see inside the Andani Akalot. Number three, like what you said, Moshe Rabbeinu was a Russia from birth? How could that be? <laughs> he had the, the abilities of a Russia from birth? What does that mean? But what does it mean that he had a light that was shining from him when he was born? No, the other, it, all these terrible if, if everybody has exactly the same abilities to be bad, then the forehead readers are completely pointless. No, no. Uh, that, that's like it's 
it's so great. You can go both ways. Definitely. It's just strange. Definitely. Definitely. It is a good question. No, it's not out there. Don't worry about that. Yeah, we do. It's on the streets of Mansharam. You know, right on that corner guy. That corner guy has the picture. It's right there. It's sitting right there. Anyway, um, Rebbe Kivager says there's only one refua that's mentioned in the Gemara that works nowadays. The reason why those refuals were all mentioned was for you to have me talk on Yakarish Baruch to trust God. That when they give you these examples of cut the chicken in half, put it on top of your head, say three words, turn yourself around, and then jump inside a river, that that works to cure a headache instead of one Advil. The, the fact that those things work is really based on your bitachon. That's what he says. But there's one thing that even works nowadays. One thing that works nowadays. If a person has a chicken bone that's stuck in their throat, says Rabbi Kiveager, the only thing that works, it's mentioned in the Gemara, it's mentioned in Shabbos Samech Zayin is you take a chicken bone, another chicken bone, you hit him on the head, you touch that chicken bone on top of his head, and you say the following, Chad, Chad, Nochis, Bola, Bola, Nochis, Chad, Chad. I can't remember that. Chad, Chad, Nochis, Bola, Bola, Nochis, Chad, Chad. And it's a guarantee, says Rabbi Kivager, it's been tried, tested, and proven that the bone will go down. People swear by Rapisa Krohn wrote a whole story on it, that it happened, that a person was choking in a whole restaurant, and it, in a whole restaurant, that it happened. Uh, somebody else has to say it, not the person himself. The person has to take a chicken bone, put it through the person's head. So we can't say anything. What? Yeah, the person's choking, obviously, will be able to have that. But that's what it says. By a fishbone, it's different. Fishbone is a different school. But he says this is the only one that works, even though it's a school. That's a chicken bone. You never think would ever work. But only a chicken bone. Only true by a chicken bone, not true by anything else. All right, let's go into something a little crazier. Kishuf. Chafez Yudzayim. Chafez Yudzayim. Mechashefa lo there's a Gemara brought down Peyalaf on the bays in Shabbos. Rechisa and Ravuna bar, uh, Rabba Baravuna. Rechisa and Rabba Baravuna was sitting on a boat, and a witch came up to them and asked if she could sit in between them. They're like, uh, no. <laughs> you can imagine, like, Rechisa and Rabba Baravuna saying, absolutely not. No, get away from us. And the witch said, what can I do for you? Oh, so she stopped the boat. She made the boat stop in the middle of the water. Umrah Milsa, I believe the word is. Umrah Milsa. She said Milsa. She said something and stopped the boat in the middle of the water. So Amru Milsa, they said something and made the boat go again. I made the boat go all over again. So she said, what can I do for you guys? You guys don't do the following. You don't do this. You don't do that. So I have no power over you. My Kishif has no power over you. So the Baal Shem says, I can understand why the Gemara doesn't want to tell us what she said to stop the boat. That's Kishif. That's Tuma. And they didn't want to say what she said. But the, only the Baal Shem can ask this question. I've had a lot of Baal things that's a little weird either way but the Baal says what did they say to make the boat go again how would they mevatel the kishuf? Wouldn't that be something we'd want to know? Why didn't the Gemara tell us? Like when somebody does kishuf against you, do the following and it'll work. Why not say that? So says the Balshemto. He looked in Svarim Miduyaki. He looked in old old Gemaras and he found that it didn't say Amru Milsa. Didn't say that. It said Amru Milas. They said Memlamitav Amru Milas. They said a word. They said a word and that was the word in the Gemara Milas. And thus they were able to make the boat go again. What was this Milas? that they said. What was the Milas? Says about Shemtov, unbelievable Kiddush, Milas are the Rashi Tevas of Mechashepa Lo Sechayeh, that a witch should not live. If you say that Pasuk says about Shemtov, with the right Kavanas, thinking the right things at the right time, when somebody does Kishif against you, no matter what they do against you, you'll be able to be Mabatul the Kishif. So whenever a witch comes up against you, this is extremely important, if a witch comes up against you and makes you start dancing, whatever you're doing,
Cohen, all you have to do is think to yourself, Mechashefa lo sechaya, think those words with the proper kavanos, and immediately everything will be taken away and everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. Unbelievable Gemara. And by the way, oh, my Chiddush in that, my Chiddush in that is Milsa. I don't think it's Mila. I think it's Milsa. It's very, very simple. There's one little problem with it, but I think it works. Mechashefa, first letter and last letter, Memin Hey, Lo, Sechaye. Milas is Mem, Lamed, and Tuf. The Yud is the Hey and the Hey, and the Aleph is the Aleph. Thus, in Milsa, you get the exact same thing. Then even in there, you get Mechashefa Lo Sechaye. Either way, whether it's, whether it's Milsa or whether it's Milas, either way, you have the idea of Mechashefa Lo Sechaye, that a witch should not live, and you have this idea that you should always use it against witches and everything will be good. Yeah. Yes, not for you. It will work. Yeah. You have to be a little bit older and you have to be a little bit... Yeah, whatever. You can make it stop arguing. It does work. It does work. I had a case once where I was walking in the middle of the street. It was 3.30 a.m. in Nebeyako. And uh, at 3.30 I was walking I was walking, and all of a sudden, in the middle of nowhere, I'm walking down one side of the street. There's a wolf. It's coming the other way. And there's a wolf or it's a massive wild dog. It's going the other way. Going the other way. There's a forest right underneath, you know, underneath the Mayako. And I walk away. I'm not even paying attention. Like, all of a sudden, I see this wolf. I'm like, hey, wolf. They're like, oh, jeez. So I was, like, getting myself ready. I'm like, I'm, like, getting myself ready for it. And then the wolf just keeps walking. So I'm like, oh, this is really strange. So I just run to the door. <laughs> Ran over the door. Regardless. Yeah. What? No, the wolf, the wolf said to me, hey, Siri. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can imagine. But either way, that's one. Number two, and this is the greatest part of Kishu. The Balaturim says it says the word three times in all Tanakh. One time over here by Mechashefa lo One time we're talking about Chachma. Chachma Tichya and Baalaha. The Chachma will live with their owners. And a third time by a Amalek. Why? That Amalek cannot live. What's the shot? So the Balaturim says Amalek survived wars by using their Chachma and Kishuf and turning themselves into animals. Changing themselves into animals. And they made themselves into an animal. The Baal Shem, uh, the Ben Ishchai, I'm sorry, the Ben Ishchai says, I say the Baal Shem too much already, the Ben Ishchai says that the shot behind the, the way you can tell if an animal is a human being or a real animal is to look at its eye. An animal, if a person turns into an animal, his eyes remain the same. His eye will remain the exact same thing as it was before. So look at the animal's eye. If the animal's eye looks like a regular eye, it's an animal. If it looks like a human eye, then it's a problem. <laughs> then you got a major issue. I don't know what to do. Put him on top of water, because water usually is not to the kitchen. Or mechashevalo zechaya. That should be good. But Amalek themselves shaped themselves into animals. And that's why Kaddish Baruch Hu told Shmuel to tell Shaul, don't let anybody in Amalek live. Not even the animals. The people, all the kids, any of the animals. Let them all die. Don't let a single animal live. Shaul, however, had pity on the animals and let the sheep live. And because he let the sheep live, thus some of the Amalekim were able to get out. But we all know the famous message that Agag, the king of the Amalekim, was kept alive for a night and before Shmuel killed him, he's able to be with a woman, with a woman, and he's able to give birth to a kid. How could Shaul let him be with a, with a woman? Why would he ever allow that over that night? Unbelievable. Agag was captured with his horse. With his horse. The horse that he was riding on was his wife. And that horse was impregnated that night by Agag, and that horse came out from there. The horse that he, that 
that came out from there was the mother of the future Amalek. That's what it came out with. Where did I get that from? I wouldn't make that up. It's from a Rabbeinu Ephraim. An absolute unbelievable Rabbeinu Ephraim. But the Rabbeinu Ephraim does say it out. And that's the Shapiani. That's how Amalek came about. Okay. One last one. Bikurim. Oh, you know what? Let's say something cool. Another one. Chaf Bez Chaf Bez Chaf Bez Afterward, they went ahead and killed them. Chaf Bez Chaf So we're going to stop with this one. Yeah. Chaf Bez Chaf The Hanukkah Satora says the following following line. It says, the Pasuk says, Malayascha v'dimaka lo sacher. Do not delay your Malaya bringing your grain v'dimaka and also your dema, your mixtures of truma and bikurim, whatever it is. Don't delay it. Bechor li. You should give your, bechor of your sons, you should give me. So everybody asks, what's the connection between the Pasuk? Giving your fruits and everything and the bechor of your sons. I guess you could say the first fruits, you know? That's what it's referring to. But there's another unbelievable thing. There are two queens of demons. One of their names is, well, we can't say the full name. We'll just say it is a lily. Lily with a tuff at the end. It's a lily. And afterward, Lilith Fair is named after her. The magazine Lilith Fair, the queen of the demons. So that's number one. Number two is a woman by the name of Machalas. Apparently, you're allowed to say her name because it has to do with sickness. Machalas is the other one. Lilith and Machalas have, Lily and Machalas have certain powers in which Lily, the way that she gets a hold of you is she makes sure you have Shikhva Zerolabatal. That's right. The end of Shovim. We're coming to the end of Shovim. She makes sure you have Shikhva Zerolabatal. She makes sure you have dreams at night that will make you have Shekhova Zerolabatala. Machalas makes sure that you cannot use that Shekhova Zerolabatala for proper purposes. That you won't be able to use it in the right way. You use it in bad ways. That's another thing. But that's Lilith and Machalas. How do you get rid of them? How do you get rid of those thoughts out of your head? How do you get rid of that, those problems? So by Lily, they say the way to do it is by crying at a funeral. When somebody passed away, cry, and also by davening. By working on your davening, you're able to get rid of Lily. You won't have any problems with Lily. The way to get rid of what? Sheikh Vazer Levatala. We succeed. That's what it's going to be. And Machla causes you to use that Sheikh Vazer Levatala for something that's evil. I don't want to explain any further than that. Let's just go with that. Machla, it's okay, you don't have to. Machla, the way to heal her, the way to get around her, is by having Simcha during mitzvahs. If you have Simcha during mitzvahs, you have, if you're very happy while doing mitzvahs, then you'll be able to get rid of Machla. So to get rid of Machla, you have to have Simcha during mitzvahs. To get rid of Lily, the way to do it is to, to the way to, to to get rid of her is by crying at funerals or by davening. Says that's Shapia in the pasuk. Maleyascha v'dimacha lo sa'acher. Maleyascha means that what you do is you have you you end up bringing bikurim. Bikurim is well known for simcha. Rashi says maleyascha refers to bikurim. You have simcha while bringing the bikurim while doing that mitzvah. It's a mitzvah which, according to the Mishnahis of bikurim, they're always the happiest in the world because they're coming by sukkahs, they're doing shlosh regalim. It's the end of the seasons. They all have food throughout their entire house. That's Malayaskal. By doing Malayaskal and by, by fulfilling all the Bikurim, that's one, to get rid of Lilis, Lily, uh, from Machlas, I'm sorry. And by Lily, you have Dimachal. Dema means what? Tears. By crying during your davening and during funerals for other people, you're able to get rid of Lily. And that's the And once those happen and you get rid of that Shekhmat problem, Bechor Banecha Titein Li. The Bechor of your sons can be given over to me. You'll have children and the children will be in the best possible way. The children will be perfect children and thus you won't have any That's what's quoted down at the very end. That's the Pshapian, Machla, Machlas and Lily. Now there's quite a bit over here about whatever. We're going to skip all the rest for now. We are, that is the end for today. Um, maybe next week we'll go into Moshe Rabbeinu and Harsina. It's quite a bit with Moshe Rabbeinu and Harsina.